This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. When we're increasingly seeing gun-related problems in in our emergency rooms, in our surgery centers, uh, in our mental health facilities, that in a way this really is an urgent public health issue that demands, I think, a kind of coordinated response across the medical communities. In the wake of past and more recent mass shootings, mental illness has been pointed to in some public statements as the root cause of mass shootings. Statements such as, we don't need a gun database, we need a mental health database in the United States. Or, people don't kill people, the mentally ill do. With such statements, mental health can become conflated with criminality, mass violence, and other tragic events. Discrimination, false stereotypes, and increased stigma for mental health patients has become a concern. As an example, when New York passed the Secure Ammunition and Firearms Enforcement Act in 2013, a core component of the law required mental health practitioners to report any patient who was likely to be violent to the health department for potential inclusion in a database. Other states have since enacted similar legal requirements. Mental health practitioners were concerned that the requirement to report and anxiety about legal liability would lead to over-reporting. Would mental health patients lose trust in the confidentiality of their health care? Would mental health patients receive an over-vigilant surveillance? One year after enacting this law in New York, the New York Times reported that the number of names within the SAFE Act database quickly rose to 34,500 names. What are the harms that occur when mental health is named as the key reason for mass shootings? Is there a deeper complexity to be understood? To shed light and research data on that greater complexity, we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Metzel, physician, psychiatrist, professor of sociology and psychiatry, and director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Kevin Murphy. And this is Ethics Lab. Dr. Metzl, you have stated that there are certain false assumptions that are important for us to understand regarding mental health and mass shootings. Could you please outline those assumptions for us? Let me just say that the article you're referencing um, appeared in the American Journal of Public Health a couple of years ago, and I wrote it with my colleague uh, at Vanderbilt, the anthropologist Ken McLeish. And it really arose out of a bit of empathy and frustration about the kind of narratives that um, Americans, and particularly the American media and also the American political establishment, um, would tell in the aftermath of horrific mass shootings, which at the time and still uh, were getting more and more frequent in, in the United States. And um, basically, there would be some horrific, horrible event, something like Parkland or Sandy Hook or Isla Vista or uh, um you know, all the way back to Columbine. <clears throat> and mass shootings are incredibly 
traumatic um, events in which a sense of kind of safety is lost. Somebody bursts into a school or a movie theater or um, uh, um, a high school, places where you shouldn't have to worry about your own safety, and ultimately kills people with, with the weapon. And a lot of times in the aftermath of that shock, the story is how could somebody have done that? And I think that, of course, that's a natural human response to a trauma that seems so outside the bounds of normal human experience. Um, the issue was very often in the questions that I would get asked in the media and listening to you know, the stories that everybody from, you know, politicians to the NRA would tell, it often wrote, became, this is a story about mental illness, that somebody was suffering from some kind of untreated mental illness, uh, and that led them to go into and this, you know, this safe space and kill people. And l let me start by saying that I, I can understand that in a way. I mean, there's a reasonable explanation for why people turn to that narrative. One is that there are significant mental health histories for many mass shooters. Many mass shooters have been, you know, suffering from untreated symptoms or have seen a psychiatrist or been on medication. So partially, it's based in a, in a particular form of reality. And the other part is that it's understandable why mental illness becomes a kind of lingua franca that we t that we tell ourselves that we talk about uh, it, meaning that you know mass shootings are so beyond the boundaries of civilized society that who but a crazy person would would do that kind of thing and so on one hand I just want to start by saying that I understand why people tell that story and at the other on the other hand um, what I think that uh, we tried to do with the article was to intervene and say wait a minute there's a lot of this story that's not being told and a lot of the assumptions um, that are being told about mental illness in relation to gun violence more broadly really are based in stereotypes uh, about how people with mental illness are rather than an, an, an on-the-ground fact. Um, one was this idea that people with mental illness are ticking time bombs, that we have to regulate them. Um, the NRA had this very famous quote that um, we don't need a gun database in the United States, we need a mental illness database. And people like Ann Coulter, the conservative commentator, basically had this quote that she wrote that, that said, people don't kill people, the mentally ill do. And so there was this assumption that basically people with mental illness are these threats, they're these ticking time bombs, we need to regulate them. Um, and so we started to look through the data and it turned out that actually this stereotype was exactly the opposite of what was happening in, in the real world. Uh, it turned out in the real world, people with mental illness were far more likely to be the targets of violence and particularly gun violence. Mentally ill populations were actually less likely than the quote-unquote sane population or non-diagnosed population to attack other people um, and, and also to commit gun violence. And so they were less likely than, than the national average. Um, and the other part is when you start to look at the actual diagnoses of mental illness, leading diagnoses like schizophrenia and depression, some of their main symptoms are withdrawing from the social world, negative symptoms, depressed mood, staying home. And so these were factors that actually took people with mental illness out of the general population. And so they were much more, much less likely to go out and, and be involved in altercations or shoot people or, or things like that. And so point number one, and I think the main point of the article is that, of course, there's a reasonable explanation for why people turn to mental illness in the aftermath of mass shootings. But when you look at 
the actual numbers, it turns out that, um, in, in effect, that stereotype is exactly the opposite of what's happening in the real world, where people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims, and they're also less likely than the quote-unquote sane population to shoot other people. So that was point number one. The second point, I think, is when you start to actually look at the stereotypes of mental illness that were being circulated, um, they were incredibly problematic stereotypes that were based not just about mental illness, but on historical assumptions about the volatile mentally ill. And they were also shaped, and a lot of our research shows this, um, by assumptions about race, about kind of who goes crazy and why. And there was a long history that we go into in, in the article about the different racial narratives that we tell about mental illness, in which basically white shooters are often assumed to be kind of white male loners who are isolated from society, who are driven to their violent acts by, you know, their own personal insanity or the acts of their individual brains. But when we looked at kind of the racialized stereotypes, it was often that black men, particularly, who actually weren't committing a lot of mass shootings, but there was this assumption that black men were being driven crazy by politics or culture or um, desires for civil rights. And so we looked, for example, at the ways that society had diagnosed black political leaders like Malcolm X and Robert Williams and Huey Newton and, and other men like that, that basically they were saying these men are crazy, not because they were out there shooting people, but because they were being driven crazy by black black political strivings in a way. And so the second story we looked at was the racial underpinnings of the mental illness narrative and the different ways that that's deployed depending on the race of the person that's being talked about. The third, I think, main stereotype um, was this assumption that basically psychiatrists could predict which one of their patients was going to go on and commit a particular violent act. Um, and when we looked again at the data, again, because there was no real psychiatric diagnosis whose symptoms were, you're going to go out and shoot somebody else, it turned out again that this was an assumption about psychiatric expertise that was unfortunately not based in any kind of reality. And the reason that's important um, is particularly because a lot of the bills that are passed in the aftermath of mass shootings empower psychiatrists or mental health practitioners to be the ones who report their patients. And of course, it's important to have different forms of guardian, you know, guardians or, or, or surveillance. But it was very important for us to note that actually mental health expertise is not able to predict which patient is going to go shoot somebody. And there are other factors that play into that, but they're not psychiatric diagnosis. New York State in 2013 was one of the first states to enact this type of law. Is that correct? New York was the main one. Uh, New York, after Sandy Hook, um, passed a, a bill called the SAFE Act, a very important bill, but a core component of that bill was to ask psychiatrists to predict kind of who were their at-threat patients. Now, of course, that's important. This, this is one level of possibly assessing people while well, they're still making threats. Um, but the issue was that when we looked at the numbers, it turned out that what this led to was a dramatic, dramatic over-reporting of psychiatric patients who then got to be on these kind of no-fly lists where they were being surveilled. But it wasn't linked to actually any, any kind of event. In other words, I think it, it kind of makes sense. When you think about it, most patients go into psychiatrists making some kind of threat. You know, I hate my boss. I hate my mom. I mean, that's kind of why people go to psychiatrists. 
psychiatrists. But I think what was happening was that psychiatrists were feeling this pressure that they had to report everybody because it was a liability issue. And so in that regard, these acts like the SAFE Act ended up leading to dramatic over-surveillance of psychiatric patients. And they didn't also take count of other possible risk factors for, for gun violence that were not linked to mental illness diagnosis. Factors like the consumption of alcohol or taking substances, a past history of violence, lack of handgun training, ready availability of firearms. In fact, just living in a place where it was easy to get a gun was a huge risk factor, but none of those had to do with any kind of mental illness diagnosis. And so part of the point of our addressing that that third stereotype was this idea that psychiatrists were the guardians who could go out and prevent mass shootings. It makes sense in a kind of emotional way, but in a factual way, there are many other factors other than psychiatric diagnosis that are far more predictive of whether somebody's going to go shoot somebody else. And, and in a way, empowering psychiatrists really weren't, weren't getting at that. As we think of healthcare professionals, your clinician colleagues, what do you think they need to pay attention to in this environment? Right. No, it's it's actually important for clinicians everywhere, and that's a wonderful question. And let me first say that there, there's a flip side to this, which is just the clinical encounter is very contested political space. I mean, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there have been laws that don't allow clinicians to even ask their patients if they have guns in the home. Also, there's a long history of kind of political tensions between the medical and scientific establishment and the pro-gun lobbyists and, and politicians. And I say that in part because, as many people know, there's been a congressional ban on federally funded gun research that goes back to the mid-1990s that's based particularly in this assumption that doctors should stay in their lane, they shouldn't be the arbiters of a bigger social issue about guns. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that there's been a lot of pushback recently from the medical establishment. I think that doctors are very important advocates for the importance of responsible, common-sense gun laws, and that's certainly begun to happen. Um, I think that doctors are an important political voice just within politics to talk about how can we find a middle ground between respecting Second Amendment rights on the one hand and not having a society in which, as doctors well know, we have increasing, increasing rates of gun uh, of gun related injury and death. So I think the medical community is a very, very key player in this story. Um, but I think that's a different story from the one that politicians and the media often tell, which is the way doctors can be um, the ways doctors can be effective is by predicting which one of their hundreds or thousands of patients who own guns are going to be the one needle in this haystack who's going to go commit a mass shooting. And I just think statistically, it's just a, a far harder argument because even patients who meet the profile of a mass shooter, you know, angry white male between 20 and 60 who owns guns and has a grudge, et cetera, et cetera, you know, less than a half percent of those patients go on to shoot to shoot somebody. And so in a way, this idea of doctors are going to be the ones who predict who's going to go commit a gun crime. Um, and when that doesn't happen, it's a failure of medical expertise. I think that's where medicine needs to push back and say, you know, medical expertise is very useful when they're doing um, prevention in a way. I mean, there are great medical interventions, but it has to do with 
asking parents, do you keep your guns in a gun safe? Do you have trigger locks? Um, identifying high-risk communities, asking patients not just about guns, but about suicidality and substance abuse. So there are all a bunch of other factors that play into this that aren't just this one simplistic narrative of one doctor can predict one patient who's going to go on to commit a shooting. What are some of the systemic changes that you feel need to take place to address false assumptions and stereotypes? Right. Again, another great question. And and one is just to say, and I think we've been seeing this, that even from the medical community, this is not just an issue of psychiatry or mental health. Now, psychiatry is a very key player here. But as we've seen from recent protests and pushbacks from the medical establishment against restrictive gun laws and practices, um, what we're seeing is that this is also an important point of alliance with other medical communities that deal a lot with gun-related injury and death. And I'm thinking of, you know, emergency room physicians, trauma surgeons, primary care docs, family docs. Um, in Tennessee, we see a lot of accidental shootings, and that's brought the pediatric community um, in, into the conversation. And so I think part of the issue is first to say this isn't just a mental health issue. It's actually an issue that affects anybody who's seeing patients are involved in patient care. And so in that sense, I think it calls on the medical community to create more alliances than it traditionally has in addressing this. I should say that I fully realize that there are many responsible gun-owning physicians out there. There are many physicians who are NRA members and support gun rights. So I'm not making an argument about the politics of of the medical profession or who any doctor should vote for. But I do think that when we're increasingly seeing gun-related problems in in our emergency rooms, in our surgery centers, uh, in our mental health facilities, that in a way, this really is an urgent public health issue that demands, I think, a kind of core coordinated response across the medical communities. Point number two is to think a lot more about prevention. I mentioned before that it's very hard for doctors to predict which patients are going to go on to commit a mass shooting, but we're very good at prevention. In other words, we know what high-risk environments are. For example, as I mentioned before, if there's a if there's a firearm present and also there's intoxication or somebody's on drugs, um, it really dramatically increases by up to five-fold the risk that there's going to be a shooting taking place when there's an altercation. And so limiting the um, places where there are firearms and alcohol and, and substances, I think, is important. I think it's important to monitor people's past histories. So people who have a past history of violence are much more likely to commit a violent act in the future. And that's important um, when you think about things like partner violence or domestic violence. So asking about that, I think, is important. Um, many much, much gun violence happens in social networks. And so asking about people's communities, their neighborhoods, their networks, I think that these are all important factors for clinicians to be trained in and to be asking about. And I also think this pushes doctors out into the political realm more than they've comfortably been in the past. In other words, I think it's been fair to say, gosh, I'm a doctor, and I just want to control what's happening in my in my clinic or in my patient interaction, and that's important. But unfortunately, the politics have kind of come to us in a way. Uh, they've come to our doorstep. Dr. Metzler, you've studied the research. What is the best research showing us, and what are you paying attention to? 
Right. Well, point one is part of the point we try to make is that we we don't have enough data, right? And 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 in a way, for for decades, we've had a kind of a, a starving of important gun research. In other words, the United States is a very important petri dish, right? That um, we live in a society with a lot of people, a lot of diversity of many different kinds, and a lot of guns. The United States has about four or five percent of the world's population, but it almost has 50 percent of the world's civilian-owned firearms. And so there's a particular issue in the United States, which is that we need more research to understand how do we live in a society with so many guns? Why do some gun owners live their whole lives without firing a bullet in any kind of confrontation and other people go out and commit mass shootings? And so part of the point we make is to highlight that because of this federal ban on research, we just don't know the answers to many big questions. Dr. Metzl, how have your physician colleagues responded to the proposal that mental health is the root cause of mass shootings? I think with the increased frustration about the inability to do anything about guns, I think one of the side effects of that has been a frustration on the part of the medical community that's led to increasingly vocal responses on the part of practitioners. And one um, I think incident that highlights that recently was that in the aftermath of um, a, a series of terrible mass shootings in Pittsburgh and California, the medical community started to speak out and say, we're the ones at the front lines. In other words, these patients are getting brought to our emergency rooms. Here's what gun trauma looks like. And there was, a, I think, a pretty unfortunate tweet on the part of the National Rifle Association that told doctors to stay in their lane. In other words, to not get involved in something that doesn't concern you. And there was a tremendous outpouring by the medical community to say, actually, you want to see what my lane looks like. Here's my daily practice of having to deal with everyday, everyday gun violence and trauma. And so I think this was a crystallizing moment for the medical community that Sitting on the sidelines isn't going to be isn't going to be possible anymore. And what I think that's leading to is not just increased activism and political engagement, but also just recognizing what are the issues, who are the candidates, what are the laws. And so I think that in a way, that tweet by the NRA and some of the actions more recently really, really, I think, kind of woke up a, a, a sleeping giant in a particular way, which is that the medical community, I don't think, really wanted to be involved in this issue, but it kind of came to us in a way. And I, I think there's going to be, you know, I, I think there's going to be more of this kind of rhetoric uh, going forward. It's also encouraging to see that journals like JAMA, for example, have now taken position statements to overturn the ban. And so I think that, you're, you know, slowly but surely, we're having a more kind of um, self-aware and politically aware engagement. And let me just repeat that again, this isn't saying that any doctors are Democrats or Republicans. It's really saying these are issues that concern the health of the populations that we're engaged with and community and society are not dealing with them responsibly. In your research and dialogue on these issues, have there been key aha moments, moments of insight that really evolved your thinking? Well, I mean, I, I have a book coming out in March that the title is, uh, it's called um, Dying of Whiteness. Uh, and it's a, a book about how racial anxieties lead to poor lead to poor health. And part of that book, about half of the book has to do with guns. Uh, and I, I travel through southern parts of the country and several southern states. And I go to, um, I go to groups, uh, largely um, family groups. Um, family groups of family members who have 
had a loved one in their family commit suicide um, by by gun. Uh, now these are groups of family members who lost a son, a father, a mother, um, um, you know, nephew. Um, to the most tragic, heartbreaking stories uh, of, um, you know, they had guns in the home, the child accidentally picked up a gun in the house and intentionally or not um, shot themselves. Or, you know, uh, one story, um, a man's um, 20-year-old son got broken up with by his girlfriend. He was very drunk. He grabbed the family gun and in a moment of impulsiveness shot himself. And... I guess I had gone down to these interviews thinking through the framework of, you know, as we all do, I think, in the politics today, you know, am I red or blue? Am I pro-gun or anti-gun? And that fell away pretty quickly for me in these groups that it didn't really matter what my politics were. These were profound, profound stories of loss and suffering. And I ended up staying down there for, you know, on and off for much of the year and really talking to people about what the meaning of of their you know, of guns were, of this loss was. And I, I really, I think, gained an appre- appreciation over the course of doing these interviews, um, not just for the sense of loss that's represented by suicide, but also for the deep roles that guns play in people's everyday lives in red state communities. And again, I'm not coming from that background myself, um, but it was so important to see the ways that people talked about their guns as being part of their identities, their histories, their their sense of self-protection in a particular way. And I came away feeling very respectful of that. It wasn't like I was down there to say, I'm some doctor and let me tell you what we should do. I, I, I came away feeling very humble that I I knew a lot less than I thought going into the project. And at the same time, this tight weaving of guns and particular forms of identity, class identity and racial identity in particular, um, made it much harder for people to have any kind of critical engagement with the question of guns or gun laws. In other words, they automatically thought that researchers were there to take away their guns, that there was no such thing as a, a gun law that would might make them safer, even if a lot of those gun laws may have prevented some of the acts of self-harm that happened in, the, in their stories. And so in a way, it was this tension between a profound sense of self and identity that was linked to the gun and this resistance to the any kind of public any kind of public health message that might have you know alleviated some of some of these issues and so it really made me think about the challenge for public health uh, to really craft better messages, thinking about the roles that guns play in people's lives. I think that's very important going forward because a lot of the messages we craft, they're messages that make sense in places where there aren't a lot of guns already. Um, but if you really want to reach out to places where there are guns, you're going to have to rethink kind of the messaging of the roles that guns play in people's lives. Jonathan, as you think about uh, physicians, nurses, social workers, uh, chaplains in hospitals who, as you're well aware, um, receive uh, uh, some of the worst tragedies that our communities have to offer. Any any advice or tools that you feel might be helpful for them as they uh, work to respond to uh, gun violence, concerns around mental health, and uh, responding to the to the concerns of their colleagues as well. Well, I think there are so many questions that we can ask as clinicians that are incredibly important that aren't traditional 
health questions. I think not just do you have a gun in the home? Do you keep it locked up? Do you have children who have access to guns? These are standard public health questions. Um, they're sometimes hard because there's such a political you know, charge surrounding guns that doctors have been afraid to ask those questions. So partially, I think it's important to keep asking those questions. But I also think there are broader questions about social, the social world and politics that we can certainly ask as well. In other words, I think it's fair to ask patients, where do you, what do guns mean to you? What, what do you imagine they do? What, what, what kind of sense of protection do your guns give you? How did you get your gun? Who taught you how to shoot? And so factors like that that aren't really linked to an illness. But I think that it's important to have a level of understanding about something that's so politically charged between doctors and patients. Um, you know, wh why do you feel like you need a gun in the home? Why do you not feel like you feel like you don't ever want to be near a gun? So I think that in a way, addressing those questions you know, I can understand that that might feel like a lot in a 10-minute office visit, um, but but and they open up really deep, um, you know, deep issues for a lot of people. But I think these are important questions for doctors to have uh, with their patients because, you know, if they do want to build an alliance and have the patients feel like they're being understood and respected. Appreciation to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, for joining us in conversation. Appreciation, as always, to our listeners. A reminder that we have posted more educational links on this issue on our podcast website next to this episode. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.